Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Oh, Jack. Jack O'Hara. Boy, you asked me some interesting questions, my man. It's a great question, Jack. Jack, hey, it's Josh Radder. Hey there, Jack O'Hara. It's Johnny Damon. Jack, so you had questions for me. Jack O'Hara, absolutely. This message is for Jack O'Hara. Jack, how are you? Hey, Jack. Jack, hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? What's going on, Jack? Uh, listen, man, you know, you, you, you asked me a couple questions. Broadcasting around the world, you're listening to The O Show. In the show and uh, doing your thing, I mean, you've got some pr- pretty big name guests. I've seen your, your stuff, so congratulations on your success. Jack O'Hara. Much nicer guy than Conan O'Brien with much better interviewing skills. Don't forget to share this episode on your social media. Now, let's get to it. I'm so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's definitely going to break up with you. She's definitely going to break up with me. Should have used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. Everybody, welcome back to the O Show podcast brought to you by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness in Scottsdale. Mayweather Boxing and Fitness in Scottsdale offers an authentic experience for those who want to learn from Floyd Money Mayweather's techniques and training regimens while getting in the best shape of their lives with high intensity group fitness setting. Get started by signing up here to learn about our special pre opening rates. Again, construction starts July 9th, opening up in August. That is Mayweather Boxing and Fitness in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's time to welcome our guest here on episode 370 of the podcast. He's a guitarist. He's the founder and producer of Lost Symphony, and he is not the king of swing. He is Benny Goodman, though. How are you, man? I'm doing great. How about you, bro? I am amazing. So your parents, we were literally just talking about this before we went on the air. Your parents name you after a very, like, probably one of the original famous musicians out there. And Benny Goodman, and every time you look up Benny Goodman on Google, it's it's him, and it's not you. Well, the funny thing is, is that I'd love to say it's because my parents had good taste in music and that they, they were passionate enough about it. But really, I'm a twin, and Benjamin yeah. in Hebrew and Greek means son of my right side, so I destroyed this side of my mom, <laughs> and then my brother. Uh, uh, Brian, who would have been named Point Dexter had my mom stuck with the lefty side of her body, um, you know, destroyed this side. So I'm actually a Ben because it just means son of my right side. And I happen to have the name Goodman because my parents are Jewish. Well, that's a better way of looking at it than just naming you after a famous musician. You know, it's one of those things where they just destined me to be destitute. So it's like, thanks, thanks, mom. Thanks, dad. And then I have to make up all these excuses as to why my name's Benny Goodman. And it's like anyone under the age of 40, they're like, your name's really Benny Goodman? And it's like my name, again, is Barack Obama or something. Like, right. What, you don't even know who, Benny, who is Benny Goodman. You don't even know who William Howard Taft is. So don't talk to me like about Benny Goodman being a weird name that you've heard a million times. Well, let's talk about this Benny Goodman. You know, you're you're not in your man cave. You're in your studio, though. You got the Guns N' Roses tee. I got the Foo Fighters tee on. Big Axl Rose slash Dave Grohl, Taylor Hawkins guys. I, I have my slash coaster right here. Yes. That my buddy made for my birthday when we went and saw them front row. So I, I you know, I love my Guns N' Roses. Out of and all, I love Foo Fighters. Out of all the guys that you've met, you know, rock stars, musicians, indifferent. Have you ever met Slash, Axel, Duff, any of those guys? I met Slash in passing, but, you know, like, it's one of those things where, like, there's a difference between, like, you know, shaking someone's hand and getting an autograph and, like, actually having, like, a, a conversation with them. I met Slash to put something in his face, and he's like, yeah, okay, cool. So, like, you know, in that sense, I was in his vicinity, but I, I have never really sat down with Slash and, you know, had a, any sort of, you know, conversation. They say as much Duff, as I'd love to, inside my head, I Oh, have. my God, 100%. They say Duff McKagan's, like, one of the most intelligent rock stars out there. Like, he reads, like, a book a week or something like that. Oh, he, he is, he is. I have a lot of friends that are good friends with that whole camp. And, in fact, when I was just at my buddy Paul's house, he bought uh, Duff's 
bass um, and I set it up for him and he was going to go have Duff sign and he was giving me all these Duff stories and I'm like, get me a backstage pass. And he's like, well, I'm already asking him to sign this bass. And I'm like, come on, come on, man. Yeah. I mean, and you were talking about before we went on too about, you know, you meeting them or them meeting you. Like you've met Joe Perry a hundred times. Has he met Benny Goodman, you know? Well, I mean, that sounds so pretentious the way you said it. Cause like, has he met Benny Goodman? Yes. He's met me. Um, <laughs> but it's one of those things. Well, you know, you just when you're someone like Joe Perry, how the hell do you expect him to internalize the ten million people? Because everyone that meets him, that's like the, the the apex of their existence. I mean, look, my buddy Paul manages him, and still every time he talks to him on the phone, he's like, "I'm talking to Joe fucking Perry." Yeah, it's Joe fucking Perry. So like, you, you know what I mean? I I would expect nothing. Like, I'm not that important. Why would he ever remember me? But the great thing is, is that every time I say my name, when he asks it politely. I tell him the same joke. I am neither king nor do I swing, but I do sing, sing, sing. And he laughs every single time. And I remember saying it for like the fifth time. And Brad, uh, Brad Whitford, the other guitarist from Aerosmith, right. came up to me. He's like, what did you say to him? He never laughs. I was like, he laughs every time to the same joke. Well, that's good. I mean, I feel like they'll remember you more that way. Like, if you say it every single time, the exact same joke, it's going to trigger his brain. Like Pavlovian. Yeah. It's just simple. Just ring the bell, and I'll start drooling. <laughs> so, so have you been, you know, that, that's your home studio, and I'm sure that's where you were at for the most part of 2020 with everything going on. How you, you had your own podcast, I saw too, right? Where you, you know, interviewed your buddies. Was what was it? Twenty twenty. Get twenty twenty. Yeah, so I have a podcast twenty twenty two zero two zero dash d dot com where we basically. I'm in a band, Lost Symphony, and we, you know, we got twenty twenty is the term we're using into doing a podcast. Like, you know, hey, what happened last year? I got twenty twenty into not working. I got twenty yep. twenty on my couch and watching The Sopranos six times. Like, you know, like hey. Uh, you know, my friend got me Bud Light instead of, you know, a, a good tasting beer. You just got 2020. Um, and that's the kind of the show. And um, the idea was to talk to other people in the entertainment industry or just people that were successful. That was the thing that was right. interesting to us is people who are successful, who utilize their time and like, what does it take to do what they do? And it's very interesting because after, you know, having uh, close to 100 episodes so far, not 300. So congratulations, a 370 or whatever it was. Um, you know, we've we've been able to draw a lot of uh, conclusions, understanding why a lot of these people in very different uh, realms, from musicians to producers to managers to directors, are successful, and it's very similar things. So it's been like a giant two hour a week LinkedIn for me, where I basically get to talk to my heroes, and they're forced to listen to my obnoxiousness. Yeah, it's like a one hour lecture. How many episodes were you putting out a week? We're doing two two episodes a week. Because um, we bamboozle all of our guests into staying longer than they feel appropriate. Hey, that's what I always do. I'm like 15, 20 minutes of your time if you can carve that out, and then it turns into 60 to 80 minutes, and they're like, eh, it's fine. Is it really fine? Doesn't matter at well, that point. I got it. I feel like if your show is good or you're engaging, and unless someone has something to do, that like that's the one of the best things you can do. My buddy Alex Boylan, who won the Amazing Race, and he's you know he's produced an incredible amount of shows he's very very talented um we had him on for two hours and after he's like hey guys i gotta admit it's pretty ballsy that you uh you know two hours i was thinking like this there's no way there's no way these guys can do it like this is gonna be, this is good i've done a lot of these things this is good i was like cool man i'm glad that you stayed for the entirety of the yeah. time you've committed to and that we didn't suck yeah like i agreed to 20 minutes you know uh, thanks alex <laughs> who's been the most interesting guest that you've had on like when you walked away from it you were just like pumped inspired and like ready to get after it there's been a lot of people that i i can't relegate it to just one person but there's a lot of things i find totally interesting for completely different reasons so like we had elizabeth jaroff who um, is the charismatic voice. Not everyone may know, but she does reaction videos. But as a, a professionally trained opera singer, namely to like metal tunes. Mm -hmm. And she's also the voice of artificial intelligence. And she, the way that she's been able to scale from like literally just being a YouTube channel to being a full-blown business and just how unbelievably good she is at what she does and how incredible her team is. Um, that was just like a wow experience in that, Hey, I'm trying to break into this realm and like I can't believe that you were able to do this so well. And like I'm just I'm taking notes. Like of all the people, I'm taking notes from her. Um, talking to a guy like Paul Geary, 
um, who is the drummer for Extreme, but he, he manages Johnny Depp and Joe Perry. Mm-hmm. I alluded to him, um, stayed at his house in, in Vegas. But hearing him talk about, you know, playing the Freddie Mercury tribute concert in front of 100,000 people and a billion people on television, um, you know, and being able to go and just hang out with him, I feel like the same way I'm sure he feels with, like, Joe Perry, but, like, with him, because I grew up listening to Extreme, and now I'm just like, that dude, that dude's, like, there, and I'm in, at his house. And, right. Pinch me. Wow. So it started out as a probably a pandemic project, I'm assuming. But, like, you're going to keep it going moving forward? Like, you found a passion in it? Like, when you can I, do it? Well, listen, man, I have a passion for speaking. And the fact that we have a technical team that edits these things together makes it removes all the obstacles for me for having fun speaking at people. And if they want to hear me, which apparently some of them do, and many don't, because I don't blame them. But they still tune into the show, apparently. Um, I'll keep talking. Wow. So you're not a singer, are you? I I do sing. I just don't sing in the band that people care about right now. So, because again, I think I was listening to an interview you did a couple months back where you were talking about, you know, you, you are a big fan of the instrumentals. The one example you gave was, you know, Getty Lee and Rush as a bassist. You loved him as a bassist, and then he started singing, and you're like, ah, it's better, you know, like, but that's like YYZ. Because he sounds like Getty Lee. You yeah. know what I mean? If he sounded like James Hetfield from Metallica circa 1983, I'd be like, fuck yeah, dude, sing all over YYZ. But, like, you know, I. It's just like Megadeth. It's like a lot of these bands. It's an acquired taste. Now that I'm older, I love Rush. Mm-hmm. I love Getty Lee's vocals. But when I was you know, younger, I was like, who is this chick ruining this awesome theme theater song? <laughs> Rush was always the band that was lame in the eyes of almost everybody until they became like a cultish fan group where they honestly probably had one of the loudest you know, concerts out there, what, like late 80s, early 90s Listen, when man, they made it big? Rush are an example of you could be the best musicians in the world and still understand how people don't get laid going to the show. Because they're awesome <laughs> and they're great, but it's, it, it's a bunch of drummers going, doing the air solo to Tom Sawyer, a bunch of guitar players just staring at Alex Lyson, and then every bass player that's ever mattered just going, oh my God, is he playing the keyboards with his feet? Is he doing right. that? Like, it's just a bunch of musicians staring at them, and then there's three or four like, you know, uh, you know, chicks that go to Berkeley right. that are like, I think that this is very well-composed music. There's three of them. Um, I think it was Dave Grohl's exact you know, Hall of Fame speech when he inducted him. He's like, when the fuck did Rush become cool? You know, like nobody... I don't know. I don't understand why they were so late. Because the instrumentals, like Neil Pert's drums, I mean, and his lyrics, he's like the one true I successful drummer I that wrote lyrics it's, for a band. It's too highbrow music, man. It's 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 too it's above people's pay grade. It's not basic. Why is Old Town Road like literally like the biggest song of that year? Because it's for basic people. And I yeah. and God bless you if you like it. It's a great jam, sure. It makes you feel good, but it's not introspective like the Professor Neil Pert. It doesn't have unbelievable polyrhythms going on. It doesn't have Alex Lifeson's brilliant ability to modulate from crazy flutters of notes because that's too much for most people's brains to comprehend. Which is why women don't like to have sex to it. <laughs> well, you obviously Except the drummer girls, you know. And, but then they're doing the flailing, and you're like, just get back here and stop. <laughs> well, you're obviously like very passionate and very illiterate about you know music and what you've been able to do. I'm very curious, you know, at a young age, what hooked you? Like, why, why music? When was the first time you picked up a, a guitar? And what kind of you know molded your mind into wanting to pursue the career that you've had and been able to again create those connections, have that intuition to connect with people that you knew that would make you successful at the end of the day? I think part of it was the, uh, the immediate ability to one-up my mom because nice. my mom always wanted to be a concert pianist, and my grandfather was like, here's a guitar. Competition. So Yeah, so then when I was younger, she bought a, pia- a grand piano. That was her big purchase was um, a grand piano, and she always played it. I was like, that's pretty cool. And then I think I was watching Sesame Street at, you know, whatever three or whatever and they played you know chopsticks or um mm-hmm. heart and soul and i went up to my mom i'm like can you teach me that and my mom was just like oh yes as the tiger <laughs> mom she's always wanted to be and then basically made me play piano to the point where i hated myself and begged her and pleaded to stop and she's like i didn't raise a quitter <laughs> and uh, i thank her now because i'm good and people are like you're really good 
you're really great, but you have to argue with your parents, yeah, have the police called on you a few times, cry a lot, and not go to the prom to really be good at an instrument. And uh, my mom helped facilitate that for me. So when was the first time that you actually like hit it? Like first time playing live in front of an audience and kind of like the first time that you realized that you could turn this into a career? So I actually had a debilitating fear of the stage when I was younger. I, I, I wanted to perform, but like I didn't feel comfortable. Right, so naturally. I wanted to quit piano lessons because you had to do the recital. And I'm like, I don't, I want to play for myself. I don't want to play for anybody else. And I didn't feel comfortable playing anyone else's music. Cause I was like, okay, I can't play Bach as good as Bach played. I, even back then I was like, how am I going to play minuet and G major better than the other dude? Who's like, that's just, I'm just going to sound like a shittier version of that. I should just write my own thing. So like, that was when I, my brain first started thinking you can do it better if you just make it up yourself. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think when I finally got into guitar around 13, 14, I, you know, I love piano now because it's an instrument that you could sit down and anyone anywhere when they see you play piano, because my, my voice is obnoxious, but when I play piano, it's like a very soothing, oh my God. And it's a wow experience for a lot of people because it's a pretty insane instrument to play that you have to really learn at a young age. And I thank my mom again for like scaring me to play because I wouldn't be able to do this now. Like I could not be the old dog learning this new trick. But when I saw my friend play a guitar, I was like, that's cool. Yeah. And that's a lot cooler than the piano. And you can run around with that thing. And Eddie Van Halen plays one of those. And Ozzy Osbourne's holding that guy that's playing one. So maybe I should do that because this piano thing doesn't seem to be doing much other than making me learn stupid box songs. So when I started doing that, um, I listened to, you know, Ozzy Osbourne and Randy Rhodes and, you know, Pantera and Dimebag Daryl and right. started listening to some of those things on the radio. And I think, you know, again, a, a song like Cemetery Gates was uh, mm -hmm. from Pantera was the first song I listened to on the radio. And I was like, but how do you make those screeching noises? Right. And I remember I had um, this guy in a jazz band uh, at a high I was in jazz band in high school. Um, that was this incredible guitar player. And he's like, this is a pinch harmonic. And I was like, oh, a pinch harmonic. And, and I didn't, I was like, but how do you make it do that? And I couldn't believe that Dimebag could get these crazy pinch harmonics and make it sound like cemetery gates is a thing. And um, you know, I think it was probably when I saw OzFest 97 and saw Ozzy live and it, with, with Pantera and Typo Negative and Fear Factory and Machine Head. And, the, and I remember Dimebag Daryl came out on stage and when he was bending, he first, first off, he had this red beard. The music was way too heavy for me. It wasn't until the song This Love came on, which starts off a little bit slower because my brain wasn't acclimated to the heaviness yet. <laughs> and I remember him like pointing up as he was gonna do like dive bombs up and then pointing down. And as he's doing this, someone came over and poured like whiskey into his mouth. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but that looks cool. He's in front of 20,000 people. He's making his guitar scream in whatever direction he's pointing like Babe Ruth going, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit it there yeah. and just hitting it out. And he has his own guy to pour alcohol in his face and he doesn't even stop. And that's, I think when I realized maybe playing in a rock band is cool. Yeah. So to go back to what you were saying, because it kind of piqued my interest about, you know, learning at a young age and not like now, like you don't think you could pick up a guitar or, you know, learn to play the piano now as opposed to back then? Well, it's different because because you when you're younger, they say, like, I think like 80 percent of your brain is developed by the time you're three and it gets yeah. like exponentially harder. So like your brain is more malleable. You're more uh, susceptible to learning things. So like violin, for example, if you're 30 years old and you want to learn the technique just to bow a violin properly, good luck. That's not even that's harder than probably even learning how to be awesome at guitars just to hold the fucking bow. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's the same thing with the piano. Think about it. You're using 10 fingers autonomous from each other. That's a lot of thoughts you know and i do it automatically just like you do like the driving thing so imagine when you were younger when you first learned how to drive you're like here's the brake maybe you're driving a standard here's the clutch and all that you had to think about it now you could drive tripping on acid or drunk as fuck and you're like i made it because the way it works is your brain it actually moves from your cerebellum to your basal ganglia you're using a different part of your brain when you're driving now it's the same thing when i play piano I just go, I want to flutter and crazy arpeggios. And I'm able to do these insanely crazy things that my brain doesn't know it's doing. It just does it. And I wish I could do it with other things. I wish I had tried to dance like Michael Jackson, but I just didn't. So this is what I have. 
I don't think your dad pushed you as hard as Joe Jackson pushed Michael Jackson either. He's not a big guy. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's interesting because like, I feel like if you were to train your brain a certain way, it's kind of like going to the gym or, you know, studying for a test or something. Like you could train your brain to go in that direction if you work hard enough at it, you know, keep your repetitions up day by day. It might not be as easy as it was when you were younger, but like let's say, you know, you at your age now wanted to pick up and play on the guitar and you were disciplined enough to do it. You don't think you'd be as good as you are now starting no, at a young that's, age? No, that's not true. So, look, there's some things that you just have a clear disadvantage as far as trying to learn. Like, you want to learn Japanese. It's not an easy freaking language. So you can learn it. I'm sure you can speak it fluently if you try. Right. Ask Marty Friedman from Megadeth. He did, you know, later in life. It's just fucking hard. Um, that said, you know, uh, you can absolutely learn things later in life and put your mind to it. I still take guitar lessons. I still take piano lessons. Um, I still write all the time and I try to keep my mental faculties going, you know, um, even getting in shape. It's one of those things like eating right and sleeping well and doing all it, You just have to start and you, you just have to have a mindset like anything. It's, it's just applicable to anything in life. Insert any variable. You want to get good at sports. You want to get good at guitar. You want to get good at, um, being a video editor, dancing, just do it a lot and surround yourself with people that do it at a very high level and hold yourself to a very high level of accountability. And at any age in life, you can get good at it. It just may be harder. So to kind of top on that, you know, like you wanting to play music for a living, like when did you realize like, okay, like I got to surround myself with the right type of people that kind of have a similar mindset than I do when, when it comes to writing and creating music but at the same time you got to market yourself you got to brand yourself when did the business side of music come into play for you and like what were some of those early on experiences with whether it be you know producers people who are trying to push your content out as opposed to again just playing music for the love of the music well one of my first i think musical understanding between the meeting between business acumen and how good your band is um, was a, a huge, I, at the time it was kind of like a, a big dramatic thing in Boston. There was a show called Loka Bazooka where, um, a guy named Dan Hartwell, who's one of my friends and he's been on the show and, you know, he's a love hate guy in, in this respect, but I, I mean, I love him and I think this is a smart idea, but he was one of the first guys to ever put together a festival where you could pay to get on. And what you do is, you know, he'd have a band like Disturbed or Faith No More or Primus or, uh, you know, someone huge, um, Godsmack, whatever, and Slipknot, all these huge bands. And you could buy onto the show, but really what you're doing is you're buying tickets at a discount rate and you could sell the tickets at a normal rate for a profit. So what it, he was trying to teach people is business acumen. You know, hey, if you buy a thousand tickets, for you know two thousand dollars and you sell them for five dollars you'll make three thousand dollars the thing is that kind of sucked is that there were so many bands trying to sell tickets a lot of them were just giving them away or just saying i was gonna i'm just gonna do this or whatever but there was a point in time in boston where people were all these bands were trying they were putting their their marketing they were doing all these crazy ideas and my band bought on to uh the main stage one year we got to play in front of 20 something thousand people we sold $10,000 in merch, which is bananas. We auctioned off, and this is my smart marketing skills at 17, a signed Pantera guitar, which I wish I could get back because <laughs> it was signed by Dimebag and it's probably worth a ridiculous amount of money, um, which got us even more people to buy our stuff. And we garnered uh, attention from a record label that ended up picking us up and signing us to a seven-figure record deal. So where that didn't happen with most bands, um, it taught me that, hey, man, I, I asked my dad if I could take money out of my college fund, like a total elitist motherfucker that I am, um, to buy tickets. And I paid him back and I got a record deal. So, you know, business acumen. But it also has taught me that the business element of it is as important, if not more. Like there's so many people that hit me up and like, I have a great song. Like, should I get a manager? Should I do this? No, you should figure out how to get people to care about your great song. Because having a great song doesn't do anything other than make the people that had expectations of that song think, good job. Yeah. I mean, you knew the business acumen, I feel like, from that, from what you just explained. And you also took risks. Like, you told your dad, like, I'm going to take money out of the college fund and we're going to take a calculated risk here. 
as opposed to not going for it at all and being like, ah, that could have been something, but didn't take the chance because the odds weren't in my favor. Like, having that conversation with your dad, was it more like, okay, like, this is what we're going to do, you know, like, I know you're going to support me, but, like, it's a calculated risk. Well, it was more of, like, my mom telling my dad that he was just going to make it happen because my dad was like, this is a terrible investment, and you're yeah. dumb, and he's not going to do this. And rightfully so, because most people lost their shirts because, you know, first off, when you have a bunch of bands trying to sell tickets, and a lot of them don't know how to sell them, and tickets are expensive, people just end up giving them away. So it's hard to sell a ticket for $45 when the other band is selling them for half price or just trying to get costs to get out of them, you know? So that's the other side of the business that, you know, a lot of people didn't think about. But um, my mom was always a huge supporter, and she's like, well, maybe you should let him try this. And, meh. and you know, my, my parents, look, are both math majors. Like, my mom oh, wow. used to teach Excel, and my dad is an option trader. So when I tell you that they literally instilled – um, you know, business acumen and numbers in me in a, the most insane way. I, I, trust me, there was a value proposition I had to like sit and write out to my father to be able to take out $8,500 to be on a main stage. I had to like make a clear cut case. I had to get the promoter, Dan Hartwell, to sit, have a sit down with my parents to explain why they should take money out for his show. And it was crazy, man, but we made it happen and it, it was a thing. I mean, that's probably something that you had no interest in doing. And it's like, all right, all these school sets or these school skills that I didn't want to learn before kind of have to come back in order for me to convince my parents to let me do this. Well, it's one of those things that sometimes there's, there's always a guy in the band that's good at it. So like in Extreme, there was Paul Geary. In yeah. fact, one of the reasons Paul Geary left Extreme was because Nuno one day said, you know, Paul, you love talking to people about T-shirts and you just love beating people up about numbers. Maybe this is your thing. And the fact is, is Paul is really, really good at that stuff. He can negotiate any deal. In fact, that's why he manages God's back. And, you know, so everyone has to leverage their strengths. I happen to think that I'm, I have some stuff, like I can hustle well on a phone, but I'm, I'm good at that. But there are a lot of other skills that I'm not good at. So one of the things that you should always learn about as a band is that you have to run like a business and leverage your strengths. So what you're not good at, find the guy that is good at that. So if you're not good at the social media thing, find the social media person that's good at that. And if you're not good at being the talking guy that, that you know, acts like the manager, get the talking guy that can blow smoke up their ass. So when they actually come there, th that, you know, we got them. They're, they're, you have to figure out those things. And if you think that just being a good band and just having a gimmick is going to do it for you, then you're sadly mistaken. And so I, I kind of wanted to touch on that, you know, kind of get into Lost Symphony a little bit, because again, it is a team effort. Like, I feel like you, you found it, you produced it, but at the same time, you have a, a set of team, I don't know how many people, you know, you know, put the musicians aside that you've brought in, like Marty Friedman and, and David Ellefson and, you know, Jeff Loomis, among others. Who, who kind of helped, you know, create the process for you guys to, again, like get all of these insanely talented musicians together to put this project together? Well, I mean, listen, I, I definitely have to give credit to, oh, there's a lot of people that were involved in it. I mean, certainly it's my brainchild, but anyone that knows me knows I know how to delegate. So it's like, yeah, I did it, but I made them mow the lawn. Right. So it started off with me posing a question to the internet. Hey, the greatest guitar players I've never heard of. And a bunch of people had said this guy, Kelly Carelock, who's the guitar player in our band. And I basically stalked him on the internet and said, Kelly, would you like to play with me? And is there anyone that I should be aware of that I am currently not aware of that may be as good as you? And he said, there's this guy, Conrad. It would be very interesting to maybe do a, uh, a collaboration. So I sent him a song and much to my surprise, he thought it was cool. And so did Conrad. And these two lunatic level, lunatic level guitarists, because it's a song called Leave Well Enough Alone, mm -hmm. basically created the proof of concept uh, uh, on my song of the most insane shred I'd ever heard since Cacophony. And I'm like, what, what the fuck is this? And it ended up being so mind-blowing to me that I was like, I, I got to do more of this. And it was really my brother and myself. I have a twin brother, um, Brian, hence not Point Dexter. And um, we've always written very well together. And we said, well, why don't we write classical music that sounds like soundtracky and has all those cool progressions we like from like, you know, learning Chopin and Beethoven and Bach and all these things growing up, but then make it metal. 
but then also make it more melodic so that if you don't like Mashuga or Pantera is a little bit too heavy, that even dad can listen to it because there's violin. Because I always remember my dad saying, but the violin's the best instrument. So if right. I had a violin in my band, then he may not have worn gun muffs with earplugs underneath. So um, it started off with Brian and I and, and basically duping Kelly and Conrad. And then um, when Conrad sent his guitar parts, he sent fake drums and they were out of control. And I said, who the fuck in the world can play this stuff? And the only guy I knew at the time that I, I thought was good enough was Jason Costa, who used to play with Diecast and plays with All That Remains. And anyone that's seen this absolute animal on the drums, like he plays traditional grip and he does like blast beats at like 240, just like chilling out. He's like, whatever. He's insane. While drinking Crown Royal, like nobody's business. So he came down and played on it like a champion and was a great friend to me and did his thing and like left. But... Ollie, his guitar player and all that remains, cares about crazy guitar playing. So when Jason was like, hey, you should check these dudes out, Ollie's, Ollie was always on a quest for knowledge. So he was like, I have to know who these guys are. Are these guys the greatest guitar players I've never heard of? So I didn't even know who Ollie was, but he contacted me and said, I, I want to play with you guys. <laughs> and that's kind of what started it was Ollie coming in and you know having some of my friends say, you know, this guy's a big deal, right? Like, you know, this guy has sold a lot of records and is all over MTV. And no, I had genuinely no idea. And once we kind of started working with Ollie, um, Ollie was on uh, this thing called Ship Rock with like Bumblefoot and David Elveson and all these. And he started being like, well, what have we got Bumblefoot? What have we got Angel Vivaldi? What do we? Uh, all right, crazy Ollie man, get us Bumblefoot. And he did. And once he did that, it kind of started the fire where it was kind of like, well, Bumblefoot did it and Rusty Cooley did it. And Andrew, why shouldn't you do it, Marty Friedman? And then, of course, when Ollie Herbert was, you know, taken from this world prematurely, which sucked, it became another catalyst to like, OK, I got to go even harder now because we used to talk about all these guitar players we could have. So now it's like in the name of my brother, Ollie. So I just ran with the ball as fast as I could, just screaming out, like, play with us. So everyone that you brought in, like, was it a hit or was it like, because I feel like sometimes when you bring people in to play something and it just doesn't sound right, it's kind of like, oh, this sounded like a cool idea at first, but it's just not meshing the way I thought it was. But for your guys' sake, was it everyone that you brought in, like, you liked the sound and it kind of turned out the way you wanted it to? So... We were really lucky in that we made this over a long period of time. And at least at first there was, I mean, until it became a, an actual thing, there was no rushing. This was completely organic. It was like, as we felt it, when Ollie came down, it was like in between tours and he'd come for a week at a time. And we'd like hang out all night and smoke weed and chill and talk. And like, there was no, like we had no agenda. So it was a very organic process. And everyone we asked was because we had sent them stuff and they're like, oh, I love that. Or how about this section? Or the So like we really tested the waters. There was very rarely any time that we sent anything to anybody and they were just like, you know, I don't know what to do with this. Or And there were people that passed on parts and thankfully, you know, because they passed on that part, we, we, we handed it to somebody else who owned it. And then maybe they wrote another awesome part. But I think with like Kelly, maybe there's like one or two times I said, try something different mm -hmm. but like nobody ever sent me shit there's there was maybe one one or two guitar players there was one guitar player that that i absolutely adore and he had sent me something that was kind of crappy and i called him out on it and he got really mad at me for a long time but we made friends again and um he came back with a vengeance and basically was like fuck you with his playing and i love that because i i guess sort of checked him a little bit mm -hmm. and he was like oh yeah benny and then just played a million times harder and better than i could have ever asked for in the first place and if that's what it takes all right I'll now he, now he's pissed now it's like all right now i'm gonna show him and then some it, and it worked it worked it worked so was this a i don't want to call it a covid project but did you have this in mind before everything hit or was it more like, okay, so, now yeah, we have it's time. funny. We said it's the pre COVID COVID project because you know, this, we have, I've never met Kelly Kerlock. We've talked like by Facebook for five and a half, six years. So this has been going on for over half a decade. 
Um, it, and it's been like this. So it's funny because everyone's like, how are you guys going to tour? And now it's like everyone's been doing these quarantine jams. It's like, but that's what we've been doing. Like, we, we've been doing that for five years, man. So um, it, it's cool because it's, it didn't change anything. If anything, when right. COVID happened, we're just like, and now they're all available. So if they say they don't want to do it, it's because they just don't, don't want, want to. to. Yeah. Wow. Was there anybody that you reached out to that just flat out declined? Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, we had reached out to a bunch of times and it didn't work. Like even I reached out to Jeff Loomis. I remember looking like four years before and Jeff's like, I'm just too busy doing my stuff and blah, blah, blah. blah. And he was wicked polite. And then, like, four years later, my buddy Joey Concepcion, who's one of the greatest freaking guitar players on the planet, was with him in Belgium and was like, you should check out this Benny Goodman guy. <laughs> and he played him some of our music, and Jeff's like, that's cool, and said he'd play on our tunes. And I'm like, I asked you four years ago. So, like, I mean, it's definitely happened, but we also moved up the, uh, the, the chain. Look, I must have asked Nuno Betancourt, 745 times i basically did everything other than like egg the dude's house to get him to play on the record because he's like one of my favorite guitar players ever so there was a lot of effort that was put into uh, some i mean some people were very easy to work with and just were awesome and it was like hey man can you play and then the next day there was a track in my mailbox but there were wow. some guys i had to like literally chase them for years but everybody was on the same page once you got them in because it's I feel like very hard to find those right pieces that all are like minded in you know having that same vision that you have that you want to manifest at the end of the day like you didn't have any issues with people being like okay like this is what we want done and here's when we want it done as opposed to someone just kind of like laying back and be like yeah I'll get to it later. Well, you definitely use the right word manifest because this whole thing is a manifestation because I, I envisioned it in my mind and it's like the mixtape I grew up listening to. And I encourage people, like, if you want to reach a goal, just be like, this is exactly what I want. I want the guy from Megadeth and I want the guy from Testament and I want strings and I want this all together with crazy drums. And like, I thought about all of that. I thought about all of those things and then I made that happen. And I encourage people to do the same thing. And this is definitely a manifestation of the music that I wanted because I used to go back and listen to a song like November Rain and wish just the solo with the piano and the strings at the end was the song for eight minutes. Right. And when I listen to a band like Dream Theater, I'd be like, this is great, but like, what if they had strings? Or what if it was, you know, more classical oriented, but not Ingve Malmsteen? And then you'd go see a movie like Beetlejuice or something or Star Wars. You're like, this music is so awesome, but imagine if it just had like an electric guitar in it. So this music came out of necessity because it was what was playing in my head. And what I was able to do over five years was get it out. And the thing is, is that a lot of this music just happened so organically where what people sent me changed the music or I was open-minded. Like a guy like Marty Friedman sent me, um, you know, a bunch of different takes of some songs and because he sent me so much cool stuff to work with it changed the way the songs ended and i actually completely rearranged some, some of my tunes based on some of the changes that he made and then the song sounded nothing like the demo so uh, there were some times where it wasn't what i expected but because we were working with people i had such a supreme respect for very rarely was i like no no that's not going to work i made it work within the realms of what i wanted to do I feel like you rarely find yourself in situations where it's like, all right, this is what I'm visualizing, and then it ends up the exact same way that you visualized it. Like, it always yeah. ends up something different that you may think or, like, flinch at at first and be like, okay, that's not the way I envisioned it, but then you let it sink in, and you're like, that's actually ten times better. Well, that, well that's one of, my, one of my favorite quotes ever, and, and certainly from Frank Zappa, because he's got a bunch of them, is, you know, um, the best thing in the world... Uh, or the best you could ever hope for is, is is finding people who can get the music out of your head exactly as you hear it, but that almost never happens. Right. And, it, and that's like a paraphrasing, of course, like a very weak paraphrasing of a much better way of putting it. But, you know, uh, you hear something in your head and the, you hope you can get it out. And one of the things I've learned about being a producer and what I've realized my strength is over, you know, let's say playing like Jeff Loomis, which I'll never be able to do. I'll never be able to play like that guy. But I can make things 
sound good and I could hear things in my head and make them come through my speakers the way that I do hear them. And that's the liberation for me. It's not that I can play every note on the guitar and blow people's minds. It's the fact that I can make a whole orchestra or make a bunch of parts work together. And I know how that, I know what it takes to make that happen and hear it from here and make it come out in my speakers. And that's a different talent altogether than sweet picking, for example. So obviously visualizing is the one thing and then manifesting is the end goal. And then there's all the crap in the middle. So you, you visualize something, then you got to put in the work for whether it's months or years on end to get to where you want to go, whether it's a project or whether it's your whole freaking career, right? So what were the, you know, nagging, agitating, just like, I don't want to be here stuff that you had to do to get to the point where you are now? I mean, everything else I had to do to pay the bills yeah. besides this, because it's not like any of this paid the bills or is even paying the bills now. Like, I mean, anyone, so many people have this misconception, even, you know, with these high end touring musicians or what have you, um, that, uh, you're making money that you're rich because you see them on stage or what have you that, right. that you're rich. There's not a lot of money in music. So um, it's one of those things where you have to find something that complements what you're doing so you can fake it till you make it. So for me, I've been a DJ for years. In mm -hmm. fact, the way I, people are like, I walk into guitar center or well, not anymore, but when I walked into guitar center and they were like, Hey, how did you get, what band are you in? Cause I bought an expensive PRS in or something. I'd always be like, dude, I'm a DJ. How do you think I can afford this? <laughs> I think my we have journey a cover band is a DJ. Hold on a second. What's up, babe? Oh yeah, uh, I'll be right out. I thought you were gonna text me. Uh, um, so I have a guy who's trading me a guitar. So he's here. So my fiance has let me know he didn't text me. So I kind of have to run. <laughs> but I, I, what it really comes down to is, look, man. I joke around because I'm actually now in a band with Shannon Larkin from Godsmack. Yeah. And he always says, you got to manifest what you want. And he's always like, Benny, I manifested you. I'm like, no, Shannon, I manifested you. Right. I manifested the dude in one of the biggest American rock bands in fucking history calling me and saying, I manifested you. That's the manipulation here, Shannon. That's what it is. And, and that's what I try to explain to everybody is that, you know, some guy had sent me the other day, like, again, what do I do with this awesome song? And I, and I said, well, what do, you, what do you want to happen? Like, what's going to make you happy? What's your end game? And it's like such a level of minutia, but at the end of the day, like, do you want to be rich? Do you want to tour? Are you prepared to take a shower in a bathroom at a crappy club? Like, are you prepared to sleep in the back of a van? Like, what level is success for you? Is selling out 1,000 seats? Is selling out 10,000 seats? Is selling out Wembley Stadium? And, and that's the thing. You, you need to be able to take anybody in your band or anything that you're doing and say, what's the three most important things? Hold a gun against their head in, the, in a separate room. And if people can't tell you the same things, then you're on the wrong team. Well, that's, very, that's a very inspiring and awesome way to look at it, you know, when it comes to manifesting your dreams and, again, surrounding yourself with the right people that want to do it and keeping those people in check as opposed to, you know, them, you know, that B word burning out quickly. You know, you got to be able to surround yourself with those people that are like-minded and are willing to go through hellfire and brimstone in order to get it, you know? And Absolutely. I know you got you got to go here soon. You got a guy waiting for you. Well, I'm the neurotic guitarist. So if people don't know the neuroticguitarist.com. I also yell at a camera about guitars if you couldn't notice <laughs> from my studio. And I have a guy that's trading me a guitar for a guitar that I have and hopefully we'll both have a new guitar day. But, you know, part of what I do is I'm constantly trading guitars and 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 and, and playing and learning and hustling cuz look uh, one of the things that Jason Leckberg, who, um, who's a marketing guy who was on our show, said, <clears throat> anybody he knows that's a millionaire has seven forms of income. And anyone that thinks that you're just going to be Kanye West and rich or that you just, you're just going to do a podcast to be rich or that you're just going to be on a TV show and be rich, like that's not it. And that's not, that's not the way to do it. It's to be happy and to figure out how to do that and then to also figure out how to get paid to do that. And that's really the way to manifest it is to figure out what you love and then figure out how to get paid to do that and then find people already making money doing that and ask them, how do I do that? And then do it that way.
Well, the last thing I want to do before I let you go, and I want you to do this very briefly so you can get to your guy, is what we sure. talked about at the beginning. I'm going to throw up a picture here of you sure. and a famous rock star, and I just want you to briefly give me the scenario of what happened here, your most you know, infamous story with this person. So, Zach, if we could put up some of those pictures. Here's Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. Well, this is my, my buddy Arif always makes fun of me because I'm all, I, for a while I was wearing the scarf because it was one of those things where, um, you know, if you're going to go meet these guys, if you meet any of these famous guys, they always have like scarves or like mulery, like the jewelry. So for a while I was peacocking with my Burberry scarf. So this was in my Burberry scarf times, but this is with the Reverend Billy Gibbons backstage at um, Kings of chaos, which unfortunately was the last time I saw Chester Bennington, which was a bummer, but it was really cool because this is the first time I've, I've met him a few times. So I wouldn't say that like, I know him, but I've, I, I've spent 25, 30 minutes with him. And that was just before I asked him about his friendship with Hendrix. And then he pulls wow. up on his iPhone, um, a picture. He's like, Oh, I just found this old picture of me and Hendrix when I was 17. So you have like this 70 something year old frail man looking through his iPhone for a picture of him and Hendrix when they were kids. And I'm just like, this is fucking cool. Oh my God. That's awesome. What else we got, Zach? Now we got a few more. Oh, here's the all-star team. All right. Oh, Depp, my God. Cooper, well, th- Joe Perry. I have to thank Paul Geary, the guy I was talking about earlier, because he manages Johnny Depp and Joe Perry. So they're two of the four Hollywood vampires. So you could have paid, you know, I think it was $1,500 or something like that to meet them, which people do. And right. I basically just begged my friends to let me into Foxwoods. <laughs> and... um you know, I, I got to say hi to those guys. And look, I've met Alice Cooper a bunch of times over the years. I, I even got to open for him. And he's always, he's like one of the nicest guys in rock and roll. Um, Joe Perry, again, super nice. Looks at, looks through my soul. Um, you know, Johnny Depp, that guy's awesome. Yep. He's super awesome. In fact, I sent him a mandolin for his birthday, which is, was June 9th. Um, and it's the same as Les Paul. And, uh, you know, I have a little thing with the universe with me and Johnny right now, but I'll leave that under wraps. But uh, I did send him a mandolin from 1905 that had the same tattoos that he has on his, um, on his shoulder. And I had uh, his British manager uh, read the letter to him that I wrote in his lovely British accent, which oh. is much more, I think, effective than if he were to read it in his own British accent in his mind. Wow. We're going to have to talk about that on a whole other podcast one time. All right, what else we got here? Rob Zombie. This this is interesting. Well, you know, you should put that against the other one that I have of Rob Zombie because that's me and Rob standing exactly 21 years to the day uh, backstage at the Xfinity Center, which was Great Woods in Mansfield, Massachusetts. And um, I, I have a bunch of people in the uh, the zombie camp, so I just weaseled my way backstage as always and got to meet him and hang out with John Five. And I mean, I've met Rob a bunch of times over the years. It's not, again... We're not friends. It's not like, hey, Rob, and I call him all the time. But he's aware of my existence. All right, what else we got? Oh, boy. So, again, back to the, the, the um, Burberry phase. And actually, same night as that Billy Gibbons picture, um, the Kings of Chaos was put together. And if people don't know, that was like a super group um, cover band where you – and it's it's changed. So they've had everyone from Joe Perry to Billy Gibbons to Robin Zander from Cheap Trick to Chester Bennington to uh, Robert DeLeo. Um, just all these great players. Uh, Matt Sorum from Guns N' Roses. Um, so that night, I think it was like Steve Stevens and Chester Bennington and uh, The Rev. And I got to hang out. And Chester Bennington was just awesome. Not only did we get to hang out and talk, but he was, I don't know where the video is. I got to find it. But like that guy was so cool that even when he wasn't on stage, he was like dancing like Mick Jagger on the side of the stage where no one could see him still just having the greatest time going like, holy shit, that's, you know, cheap trick doing cheap trick. And I remember I was talking to one of my friends on the side of the, stri- uh, the stage that night and I got like a tap on the shoulder and it was Chester holding a wireless being like, hey, man. I got to get on stage and sing. And he was like, so polite about it. I'm like, Oh, sorry, Chester Bennington from blocking you from getting on to sing Led Zeppelin. I'm a dick. Wow. Oh, here we go. Jason Jason Bond. Bond. That guy's amazing. So first off, how much cooler do you get than that? Um, you know, Zeppelin and the fact that like that dude is a perfect example of somebody 
who a lot of people think like, well, you're living in the shadow of your father. Yeah, that's why he's fucking amazing. And one of the things I actually talked to him like extensively about was, you know, you can't suck if your dad's John Bonham because you can't just live off of that because everyone expects you to be awesome. And he is awesome. Awesome enough that even Phil Collins, even Phil Collins said, hey man, play drums for me. Because the singer slash drummer of Genesis is like, hey, that dude, He's, he's like his pops and, and he is, and he was, uh, he's always been super kind to me. Um, his wife's super cool. And he even let me sit behind his kit, which was ridiculous considering I have no business doing that. Wow. That's crazy. Let's keep him coming. Ace Fraley from kiss. I don't think Ace Fraley remembers even being there. I'll leave it at that. Like Ace, he doesn't know where he's at. He's just giving the thumbs up to the world. <laughs> Sammy Hagar, that guy's the fucking man. In fact, um, I can't, he's like 72 in that picture. And I look like maybe three years younger than him. Like he's unbelievable, super nice, and uh, always funny. And that's a guy like, you know, he's the singer of Van Halen, but he's still like, hey, do you want me to mix you a drink? You want me to do this? Like, for like, hey, we're going to go part. Like, that dude, if I'm 72 and I'm even a millionth of what Sammy Hagar is, like, so help me God. Like, I don't think that he should be selling tequila. I think he should be selling life juice. Wow. Well, here's one. One of my favorites, honestly. I think he's one of the more underrated lyricists of all time, Corey Taylor. Corey, Corey, so I have another one that, again, it was almost 21 years to the day because I think I saw him at OzFest 99 or something, and we have a picture of all of the the, uh, Slipknot guys holding guns against my head, you know, when Paul Gray was here and, and it was a little bit of a different story. So I had shown that to, to Corey just before that picture because they had, I'd even seen them with Anthrax because they had come just before that. But when they played the OzFest in 99, um, they hadn't come out with the record yet. And I had like a two song demo that was like a rough mix from Ross Robinson's board, like sent to me of eyeless and surfacing. And I remember saying to my buddy, Dan Hartwell, at Logan Bazooka, these guys are going to be fucking nuts. And we booked them. I went backstage and I was able to book them for free um, for Logan Bazooka. Like we paid for their expenses to get there, but they didn't even charge us because at that point, you know, you had to buy on to be on these big festivals. And by the time Slipknot came and played, they were the biggest metal band in the world. And um, when they came back, uh, you know, Corey's a really... He's a really cool dude, and he's he's definitely very introspective. And you know, if you catch him at the right time, like he's one of the the most thoughtful people on the planet, and he's always treated me with total respect, despite the fact I doubt he knows who I am. That's unbelievable. That is so many great stories with so many great musicians, and I know you got to get down to business, so I'll let you get down to business. Wish me luck, uh, Benny I Goodman, hope, not the King of Swing. Out. But one hell of a guitarist. Again, check out Lost Symphony. This was episode 370 of The O Show, presented by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness in Scottsdale. Remember, they're opening up July 9th. Construction starts July 9th. They'll be open throughout the summer. Mayweather Boxing and Fitness in Scottsdale. Again, this was episode 370 of The O Show. Thanks for watching. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.